Okay. We are going to move right on here and get started with our final question and answer session here with Dr. Master and Dr. Truman. I see questions are still coming in, and I will do my best to field them. We have a lot, so if your question doesn't make it, I don't know what we can do, but I'm sure they could answer more afterwards. Let me start. Let me start here. For you, Carl, will you write a sequel to your book on the Christian self? Uh, well, there's a book coming out in about two weeks' time, which is a, in part a shorter version of the bigger book, but also contains some new material where I reflect upon more upon technology, things like that. So, uh, and the other big project I have, I'm writing a book on uh, the origin and development of critical theory, which may sound a bit pointy-headed and is a bit pointy-headed, but is an attempt to provide a book, particularly for college students and seminary students, that will help them to understand how critical theory operates and the way it's shaping a lot of the discussions that are even going on in churches at the moment. So those are my next two projects, and I suppose both of them, in a way, are sort of sequels to the, the big book. Dr. Master, <clears throat> how does one maintain both the necessary humility and courage in critical theological debate? In our age of feelings, should we expect feelings to be hurt even when we are seeking to carry ourselves with humility? I think we should expect that people are going to at least say that their feelings have been hurt. That's, um, that's one of the things that I think Carl talked about even in his first lecture that we're that this is the kind of language that's being used. So in that sense, I think we should expect that. That's often a tactic, as as uh, Mike Myers reminded us of yesterday. I don't think that means that you're necessarily not exercising humility or arguing in a humble way. Uh, I think very often we could see in Scripture, uh, you think of the, the Apostle Paul as he boldly, confidently, yet with humility, went and proclaimed the gospel. Many people were offended by that. And in fact, the very people who should have most welcomed the good news of Jesus Christ found it deeply offensive. We see it in the second century. I think one of the the, the, the points one of the uh, of the of looking at the example of Christians in the second century is that they were acting in ways that were accord with the scriptures they were uh, living in ways by and large that were driven by biblical humility and, and yet it was deeply considered deeply offensive to the culture in which they lived so I think we we as I as I tried to articulate last night we we, we almost cannot overemphasize our need to be humble, uh, the call to humility, but I don't think we can measure that by how someone may respond to teaching that we give or questions that we raise. That's not the measure, I think, of acting in biblical humility. We always want to be questioning ourselves. If someone does react in a certain way, we do want to ask ourselves, is that because of me? Am I, am I uh, being proud? But 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 I, those don't correlate in Scripture necessarily, and they certainly don't correlate in the in the best, most exemplary moments in the history of the church. Uh, 
Dr. Truman, you spoke about the advance of technology in our age and its function as a sort of mediator or interpreter of reality. Actually, this question is for both, but first, Dr. Truman. Do you think that, in a similar manner, the live streaming of public worship and, in brackets, COVID, uh, has the potential, or worse, a potential to disrupt or corrupt public worship? Should we stop it? or cut it off, what do you think? Certainly has the potential to corrupt it. I think, I would certainly say that during the time of COVID in the early phases where nobody quite knew what was going on and some churches, including the one where I worship at at uh, Grove City, uh, closed worship down, except for the minister and pianist. Uh, live streaming was helpful in that context. Uh, we didn't know what was going on. It was a short-term thing. I think the persistence of live streaming can be helpful to those. Uh, we have an elderly couple at our church who can't get out to church on a Sunday. And I think watching a live stream service is, I imagine, better than nothing at all. What concerns me is where people will replace live worship, actual in-person worship, with the live stream. So I, I, that worries me because... Worship isn't just me and my Bible and hearing words or seeing pictures on a screen. There's something about being shoulder to shoulder with people. There's something about bodily interaction and bodily presence that is important. We know that intuitively. I can see my mum on, on a Zoom screen, and that's great. It's, it's better than not seeing my mum. But it's not the same as sitting in her living room having a cup of tea with her. I may not be able to articulate why the uh, the latter is better than the former, but I know that it is. Uh, I was chatting to a student recently, and I, I asked her, do you do this weird thing, she, her fiancé is in France, where you and your fiancé watch a movie at the same time, but you do it online? And she said, yes. I said, well, to me, that's weird. I said, but you do that because you're trying to recreate physical presence as much as you possibly can. So I do think that, that screens can be helpful, but I think when they supplant actually being in worship, not helpful at all. And I would suggest that there are ways around that, uh, that churches don't, as I understand it, have to live stream their services to everybody. For that couple who can't get to worship, uh, I think you can probably stream the service for those who have a passcode for that Sunday. And it would seem to me that perhaps doing something like that allows us to use the benefit of live streaming for those who are incapable of getting to physical worship for very legitimate reasons, while not enabling those who simply want to lie in bed in their pajamas and, and listen to the minister on a Sunday. I don't know if I have too much to add to that. Um, I would simply underscore this fact that when through some extraordinary circumstances, and we can see in the history of our Reformed churches, there have been extraordinary moments where, where for certain brief seasons, often because of plague or disease, there was this, um, this, uh, this inability to gather for public worship temporarily. But, but I will say that that, that at, at most should be viewed, in my mind, as, as a kind of it's a situation of exile. It's, I mean, in those situations, what, what, I, what I fear is that Christians who are in those situations aren't 
lamenting in the way that we see the psalmist lament, the way in which we see some of those prophets living in exile like Daniel uh, lament at the inability to gather together with God's people because that is undeniably the biblical norm for all kinds of uh, significant reasons, not least that God commands his people to gather together publicly uh, to worship him. So again, would would affirm everything that Carl said, but, but just underscore that if those moments do happen and we all might argue about what constitutes extraordinary circumstances, um, we should lament that fact because it is something that that's not right, that's not the norm, that's not the way it's supposed to be for the people of God. Another question. Uh, what part has feminism had to play in the identity crisis? And how should the church deal with feminism? And then a similar question on a number of cards. Uh, do you see a, a concerning rise or the influence of feminist ideas in Presbyterianism today? This question is for all speakers. Well, I think it depends what you mean by feminism. There are various feminisms out there. Uh, you know, the, the feminism that got women the vote, I would say, is a good thing. Uh, the feminism that I'm reading, I'm reading a book on for this lecture on Saturday, uh, Complete Surrogacy Now, that wants to see uh, uh, basically child-rearing uh, taken completely away from mum and dad and placed in the hands of the state or the scientists, I think it's a very bad thing. So I would say the question needs clarification as to precisely what kind of feminism uh, we, are, we are looking at. Uh, there is a kind of feminism that has emerged just recently that... Uh, places great emphasis upon the importance of the physical relationship between mother and baby and the importance of the physical responsibility of the father to take responsibility for the baby that he's produced. It would strike me that that has something useful to say. So I would say the question really needs to be made far more precise in order to be answered uh, in anything like an adequate fashion. Having said that, has radical feminism affected certain parts of the church? For sure. Is that a good thing? No. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I, I think I'm sure that um, Carl's right in this uh, because there are nuances to, to the way in which these uh, ideas take shape. I think at its popular level form, the form in which we're all most familiar with it, there is a kind of, um, there can be a kind of grievance mentality that is, um, that is divisive, and again, refer you to some of the comments made yesterday, and, and that I think needs to be seen for what it is. Uh, so there's a, you know, you ask him for the sophisticated answer, and then, and then you come to me, um, and, and his answer is right, but, but, I, do think, but I do think it's also at, at a popular level driven oftentimes by a, a grievance mentality and tearing down rather than offering constructive um, perhaps suggestions for, for blind spots that we've had. Again, this is for both. Uh, what... Oh, actually, Dr. Truman first. What spiritual exercises would it help a Christian now in a safe and prosperous time to prepare for possible persecution? And then 
for Dr. Master related, I guess, what thought should seminarians give to prepare, seminaries give to preparing students for persecution? Yeah, good question. I think it uh, sounds rather trite to say it, but I think first and foremost, uh, faithful presence in public worship. Uh, I think is absolutely basic to Christian discipleship in all ages. So that's uh, central. I think uh, a good theology of suffering is important too. I remember reading many, many years ago D.A. Carson's book, I think, How Long, O Lord? And in the introduction to that work, he says, if you, it's about suffering, and he says, if you're reading this book because you're already suffering, it's too late. And I think that's the case. When you think about it, the man with the toothache has little time to contemplate the significance of suffering and pain and put it in a broader context. The man with toothache is wrapped up with the immediate pain. So I think part of what we do now is is frame our thinking and frame our theology of suffering and frame our expectations of the Christian life in an appropriate way so that when setbacks, challenges, contradictions come, they're not surprises to us. You know, an analogy might be pretty much all of us, I guess, at points in our lives have been very badly treated by other Christians. Uh, that only shipwrecks your faith if you don't have a prior good solid understanding of human depravity. If you have a good understanding of human depravity, then it can be frustrating and disappointing and outrageous even that a Christian treats you badly, but it doesn't shatter your faith. You know, I'm always glad that, you know, that the scurvy treatment I've received from some Christians came later in my Christian life than right at the start, before I'd got that firm, solid foundation. So I would say, get a good theology of suffering. And I would recommend the series that's coming out from Crossway, uh, written by the Wheaton professor Mark Talbot. Mark is in a wheelchair because of an accident he had as a teenager when he fell out of a tree. One volume has been published. There's another volume coming out. It's going to be four volumes uh, in its entirety. And I think that is, I think it's the best treatment of suffering in the Christian life that I've ever read. So get a good theology of suffering and get your expectations of the Christian life properly attuned. Uh, I think one of the problems we face, particularly in America, but in the West in general, is that Christianity enjoyed a very privileged position for 1,500 years or so. I don't think anything in the Bible would ever have led us to expect that. So what is historically normative is arguably theologically exceptional. We need to get our minds around the fact that what is coming is probably more theologically normative than what we've had in the past. Just to add to that, I, I would underscore um, participating in the public worship of your church, benefiting from the means of grace that God's given us. You know, the Lord gives us everything we need for life and godliness in the knowledge of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true when times are easy, and that's true when times are difficult. And so that, that participation in the life of the church, the regular worship of, of our local congregations is inestimably important. Um, in addition to that, I, I would say, the, as, as Carl mentioned, expectations are significant. So be acquainted with the history of the church. It is true, as he said, that Christianity uh, held a privileged position for perhaps 1,500 years in the West. But it's also true that if you look carefully at the biographies 
of men who were very faithful in their time, those biographies invariably include accounts of great suffering, personal suffering perhaps, perhaps not cultural suffering in every case, but personal suffering at a deep level. That's exactly what the Bible would lead us to expect because the Apostle Paul tells us all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you also. And so, in terms of perspective, I think there is great value in looking at the examples of, of the saints of old, and there is even greater value in having our mindset uh, adjusted by a, 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 a careful look at what the Bible actually uh, says in terms of what we should expect uh, being followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two similar questions here for Dr. Truman. Uh, what advice do you have for Christians in the workplace who are being pressured to use certain pronouns for uh, colleagues at work? And then, should a Christian refuse to complete, for example, LGBT sensitivity training at their, at their workplace? Interesting questions and questions that come up with disturbing regularity. Uh, as to the first, I am conscious in answering this that there's nothing on the line for me. I'm always, I, I hesitate to, to give advice which costs me nothing but which could cost somebody else everything, if I could put it that way. I would say this, uh, names to me don't matter. If somebody changes their name a name is just a, it's just a sound. Uh, my granddaughter is, has the middle name James because James is a family tradition. Yeah, Emily James, I keep threatening, well, I'm going to call her little Jimmy, but you know, I'm told that that's not acceptable. But names don't matter. So if, if a co-worker changes their name from uh, Dave to Caroline, I'm inclined to say that doesn't rise to the level of a major moral crisis. If you're being asked to use other pronouns, my thinking has, 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 has wavered on this a bit over the months, but at this moment in time, I'm inclined to say that's a bridge too far. That's a bridge too far. That's affirming non-reality. Now, that isn't to say, when I've, done a, I've written a lot on the transgender stuff over the last couple of years, and... You know, I, I can't put my hand on my heart and say every time I've referred to Bruce Jenner, I've always referred to him as a he and not a she. It can be very confusing. And, you know, one's intuitions are sort of scrambled when you try to address this stuff. But I think as a point of principle, no, that's, that's a bridge too far at this point. Uh, having said that, if I had somebody in my congregation, if I had a congregation and somebody in my congregation was using preferred pronouns in that way, in their place of work, and I found out about it, would I discipline them as, as that being a matter of sin? I'm not sure I would do that. I'm not sure I would do that. I might say, well, I disagree with you. That's a matter for your personal conscience. You must answer for it at the end. But I'm not sure that I would proceed to formal discipline in that situation. Uh, as far as LGBTQ training goes, I think it depends on the kind of the training. 
I mean, I'd like to say to, if there was a trans activist here, I'd like to say, you know, you and I want fundamentally the same thing. We want trans people to be safe. What do you mean by safe, though? What does that look like? Uh, how do you articulate that? How do you understand that to be? So if LGBTQ training in your workplace basically boils down to treat people with decency and respect regardless of their sexual orientation, I don't have any problem with that. If it goes beyond that to some kind of LGBTQ affirming policy, which I suspect in many cases it, it might, then that becomes problematic. But if it's just training that is, you know, treat other people as human beings with respect and decency, that's not a problem to me. So again, the question would need a little bit of refining for me to give a precise answer. But I'm inclined to say, if it doesn't involve you positively affirming an identity or a way of life, then I would not find it morally exceptionable, I don't think. Oh, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of many, some years ago, my son was, uh, he was, he, he went to the University of Pennsylvania, and he was a track runner, middle distance, pretty decent middle distance track runner. And uh, it, the, some girl on the team came out, and the team were asked uh, to wear rainbow armbands in support. Uh, and he'd only just professed faith as a Christian, so he gave me a call and said, you know, Dad, what am I supposed to do? And actually, this was a watershed moment for me because it was very much the moment of, okay, I need to start speaking up on this now. If my son's having to take a stand, having been a, you know, professing Christian faith for about four weeks, then really I need to use my privileged position at working at a place where I'm not going to lose my job start speaking up. So it was a bit of a watershed for me. And the advice I gave him was, you need to politely decline. You need to say to your, uh, to your track friends that you rejoice to live in a land where they're free to wear or not wear the armband. And that you're glad the government does not intervene and stop people from doing that stuff. But you respectfully decline and as you respect their freedom of speech under the constitution, even as a resident alien, you should expect them to respect your freedom of speech under the Constitution. I said, you should use that as an argument. I said, it won't work. Uh, you know, they, won't, they won't find it persuasive because it's not actually about freedom of speech and freedom of expression. It's about being forced to affirm a particular kind of identity and lifestyle. I said, but trust me, it's still a good argument. It works as an argument. It may not work as a cultural ploy at this point. And he did, and, and actually they sort of respected him for it. But that's nearly 10 years ago. You know, that's, that's, that's a million years ago in terms of identity politics. He wouldn't get away with it today. Uh, but I, I think that was, you know, I still think that way of handling this issue is a good way of handling it in the civic sphere, even though it will no longer work today. Again, Dr. Truman, do you see the same crisis of an understanding of identity in the Eastern Church and then the Far Eastern world? That's a very good question. And I would say that the narrative of my book and the narrative of my lectures today and my own thinking on this subject is really addressed to the Western world. I, I think one of the things that's emerged over the last 30, 40, 50 years is that modernity, the modern world in which we live in, looks different in different parts of the world. America is one thing, Europe, Western Europe is another, Russia is another, India is another, 
Sub-Saharan Africa is another. There are different modernities around the world. So I would make no claim that my narrative works and explains the world, say, in South Korea or Vietnam in the way that I think it works in North America and Western Europe. As to the Eastern Church, a couple of things on that front. One, I remember, because the Eastern Church, in theory, has no wiggle room on this issue whatsoever, I was very interested a few years ago when I got uh, John McGuckin's book on Eastern Orthodoxy. He's a great Orthodox uh, scholar and thinker. And he teaches at Union Seminary in New York. That struck me. That's an interesting place to work if you're Eastern Orthodox on LGBTQ issues. So how does he negotiate that? Well, I looked up the section in the book on uh, LGBT stuff, and it was utterly incomprehensible. And I thought, well, the way he does it is that he just makes it totally incomprehensible. So nobody knows exactly where he stands. Uh, one of the interesting things that strikes me about Eastern Orthodoxy is and I'm very dependent upon sort of Rod Dreyer's daily briefings on this front because he is an Eastern Orthodox guy, that there are movements within the Orthodox Church to capitulate on this. I don't know how they can do it given their understanding of traditional authority, but it seems that the Orthodox Church in some quarters is looking as if it might capitulate on that issue, which I take as a sign of the huge social pressure that this carries behind it with it. And I think also speaks to the fact that, and I see the problem in spades in the Catholic Church as well, churches that have enjoyed significant social status in certain communities are going to find it very hard to hold the line on this because they will have to sacrifice their social status in order to hold that line. And that's why I am very pessimistic about Protestantism as well. Because even the conservative churches to which we belong enjoy a certain cachet in certain communities that may no longer be possible in the coming years. Dr. Master, what does humility look like on social media? It doesn't. (laughs) I'm not sure I've seen an example um, that I can point you to. No, it, it, it is... It is fraught with danger because by its very nature, social media is self-aggrandizing and and it sort of uh, uh, makes a commodity of self-aggrandizement. I I know that there are many, many people who use social media just to keep in touch with friends and and family members and things like that, and that's a much more innocuous usage of it. But but in general, when it becomes uh, a significant part of one's life, it's hard to escape the fact that that that's the whole framework of it. Um, it it's, it's meant for you to showcase something of yourself in a way that appeals to other people in a kind of affinity network develops or a, or a fan network develops. The, 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 the celebrity culture... Uh, which is very much a part of um, our church culture. This is this is all wrapped up in the kind of thing we see on social media. And then and then in addition to that, because because you establish an affinity network, that can very easily become an echo chamber. And so you get status points from others by saying the things that you know those people want to hear. And, and drawing the lines that you know they want you to draw. And, and that, that, that's a kind of peer pressure that is 
very difficult to escape from because you know if you step outside those lines, even if by conviction, um, you're going to get assaulted by this network that you, you that is built up around you. And so it requires wisdom that is, is far beyond what I possess, which is why I'm not really on any social media stuff at all. And, um, and, and, I, and, I, and I have seen examples of, of people who navigate that well as a way of broadcasting uh, good things and as a way, again, of keeping in touch with people that they, they need to keep in touch with. And I, and I get all that. But, but the, the energy behind it, what, what sort of fuels it, is, um, is it's difficult to keep in check um, when you consider what the Bible teaches uh, regarding humility. So I, I you know, I, I, that's, I, I sort of despair of that a little. Yeah, I'd just add one thing to that. It's an interesting phenomenon that my impression of Twitter is that Twitter discussions, the temperature always rises, which is interesting. I've been on panels in the past with people that I strongly disagree with on certain things. Generally speaking, my experience of physical discussion is that the temperature drops because you're exchanging jokes. You can see the other person. There's body language involved. I, I think that really contentious issues are often best, where possible, hashed out in person because physical presence oddly lowers the temperature. Not always. But Twitter, by its very disembodied and rapid-fire nature, I think tends to accelerate and increase temperature and tension. I just want to say one more thing about that. Yeah, yeah. I know, the temperature is rising. I can feel it too. Um, no, I would say, I do want to say one more thing, which is, it struck me, even as I was listening to that, a number of questions were asked earlier about public worship and the significance of public worship. And even public worship and our engagement in regular public worship and obedience to the scriptures as a preparation for suffering. And all of that, we, we, agree, with, uh, we agree on completely and we would want to emphasize. And, and if that's true, then what that means is pastoral ministry is primarily a calling, not exclusively. Again, I know there are ways to broadcast and have conversations online, but is, is, a, is a calling that is embodied. Um, when Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 talks about his ministry in the Thessalonian church, he's house to house. He's opening the word of God to them. He shares with them not only the word of God, but also his very life, he says. And, and I think there is an extent to which it can be an easy way out to build an audience for, for quote-unquote ministry purposes and neglect the fact that pastors are called to be with people, to be with a congregation to whom God has called them. So I think that's a particular warning that I would, I would want to emphasize to those who are either preparing for pastoral ministry or who are themselves um, engaged in pastoral ministry. A pastoral question, and this actually is a bit of a conflation of two similar questions. How does a covenant youth, discouraged with their own sins and seeing such a dark world all around, maintain hope? How can I avoid sinking into despair about myself and the world? Good question. Uh, I, I think that's a hardy perennial that comes up in a different form throughout church history. 
And again, you know, I, I probably sound like a broken record at this point, but I think the importance of public worship is critical because clearly the, the ultimate answer to despair is hearing and grasping by faith the gospel as it's proclaimed. So I would say to that person, well, first of all, I would say don't despair about your despair. You know, it's okay to be dissatisfied with yourself. It's okay to recognize your own imperfections and sin. It's okay to be depressed. You know, don't allow the myths of the world around that we're all supposed to be happy all the time to be your frame of reference for understanding your own experience. And secondly, go to church and take seriously the words of the gospel as they are proclaimed to you in word and sacrament week by week and month by month. In Matthew's gospel, there are two circumstances in which it says the disciples worshipped and doubted. One of those is in the middle of the gospel and the other is right before the Great Commission. It says that as they saw the resurrected Christ, they worshipped and doubted. There's a kind of fear involved in that, of course. They didn't know what was coming next. And they didn't fully even understand what had just happened and what the implications of it would be for them. Although they were worshipping the resurrected Christ, genuinely. And it's into that circumstance on both occasions, but particularly thinking of the end of Matthew's Gospel, in which Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then, after giving the Great Commission, as a kind of bookend, says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. We're not yet at the point of the return of Christ. None of us knows how long it will be, but the reality is we do have the sure and certain promise of Jesus that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and that he'll be with you to the end of the age. It's not an accident that you were born in the time in which you were born. It's not an accident that you were placed in circumstances which have peculiar challenges, which make other eras of church history look easier to you. None of those things is accidental, and none of them in any way sidelines this truth that Jesus Christ gives to his disciples as they worship him and yet have these kinds of doubts. So take take heart, take courage. This is a perennial feeling that, that uh, Christians have as they face the future, and yet those, those words of the Great Commission, how... How affirming they are to us. One more question, and it, it two different forms, and I'll try and bring them together. Dr. Master, uh, how does GPTS plan to maintain its fidelity to Scripture, confessional orthodoxy, in light of the pressures we're talking about today, which we see even in nearby Presbyterianism, even in recent OPC and PCA controversies? Uh, and this especially when considering the warnings we heard Tuesday morning in the pre-conference session from Dr. Hamilton. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I thought that was so helpful and so timely. We wanted Dr. Hamilton to speak to us particularly on the causes of decline, the causes of declension in the church. Paul reminds all of us in 1 Corinthians 10, let him who thinks he stands firm take heed lest he fall. And that's true for individuals, of course, but it can also be true of institutions. It's the primary thing that I ask people, and I'm not ashamed to ask you, to pray for for the seminary. 
that we remain faithful to the calling that the Lord's given to us and to the convictions that we hold. Uh, it's one of the things that, it is the, the thing that I pray for the most for myself and for all of us uh, who are part of the seminary community. It is, it's a work of God's grace, and so we need to ask for his help in that. I think at a, at a, um, uh, at a human level, we, we do have a number of checks, as it were, in place. Everyone from the trustees on down uh, every year without any reservation affirms our standards of doctrine, the Westminster standards. We're really clear about that and upfront about it. We're, we're so open about it that in a sense it creates a kind of mutual accountability. I know that there are people in this room, many people in this room, who would hold us accountable, hold our feet to the fire and press us, who would press me if, if, if we diverged from that. And, and, and I welcome that. That's a good thing. That kind of scrutiny um, is, is the kind of thing we all need. So we do those, we do those things. We're open about them. There is, a, 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 I think, a kind of godly sincerity that is inherent in full and transparent confessionalism. But, but nonetheless, at the, at the end of it all, it is, uh, we rely on, on God to be gracious to us, to keep us faithful to him and to his word and to the commitments that we've made publicly to one another and also um, to him. Thank you, everyone. I think we're at uh, time now for the end of the Q&A. Thank you to our speakers as well for participating, and I think we just have some closing remarks. I didn't plan closing remarks, but whatever, whatever Peter tells me to do, I will do. No, I will say this. Um, as it, as, as it happens, this is, of course, the end of, the end of our conference today. And I want to extend, again, gratitude ultimately to the Lord, but also to you who have been here. This has been such an encouraging week to many of us. I've heard people say that over and over again, a challenging week, almost overwhelming at times with the teaching we've received, but, but also encouraging in the Lord. And so we're grateful for your ongoing support of our work here, your ongoing support of one another. And um, in, in, in after we adjourn from here, uh, please feel free, if there, are, if there are questions that you have or, or concerns that you have, you can feel free to bring them to us. We are grateful for our seminary community, for our alumni, for our supporters, and we're thankful to all of you for joining us this week. I'll, I'll, let's stand and I'll close in prayer. Lord, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. We thank you for the unity, the bonds of the Spirit, which we've experienced the fruit of this week. We thank you for giving gifted men to your church as teachers. And we do recognize that the good teaching we've received this week, even this morning, is ultimately from you. We ask for the continued ministry of your Holy Spirit. We do ask 
that our seminary would remain faithful to you, faithful to our vows, faithful to the doctrinal commitments which we hold. Father, we ask that as we enter what may be difficult days, in fact, we're living in difficult days. You promised us that we would be. That we would nonetheless have confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, joy in the Holy Spirit, and a willing and eager desire to share the good news of the cross and empty tomb. We ask that you would watch over those who are traveling this afternoon. Be with all of us as we dismiss from this place. Cause the seeds that were planted to take root in our heart and to bear great fruit in our churches and in our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.